We're going to continue our series on parables. We're looking at the power of story and how Jesus has changed the world through parables. We've already looked at two parables so far in this series. We looked at the parable of new wine, which was really a, a powerful illustration about the kingdom of God, that it was something new and substantial and couldn't just fit into their established systems. But last week, we looked at the parable on judgment, right? Do not judge lest you be judged. How can you remove the speck of sawdust out of your brother's eye and ignore the plank in your own? And as we dove into that parable, we discovered that it was not so much about judgment as much as it was about grace and forgiveness, right? And that the the way that we respond to those things is to have the appropriate lens through which we see ourselves and others so that we can see clearly. And the lens that we need to be looking through is not the lens of judgment, but through God's amazing grace. And so we've had two parables that we've already had a chance to really kind of dive into. And so we're going to move into a third one today, which is one of my favorite parables. And to try to kind of set the tone for this parable, let me just briefly explain to you a little bit about what it's like in the Smith household. Uh, my wife loves plants. And I mean that with like the full extent of the phrase, okay? She's always enjoyed gardening and the outdoors and all that other stuff, but somewhere along the line in the last couple of years, her love for plants has grown exponentially and so have the number of plants in our home, okay? And so I actually went through this week just to give you an idea of what sort of love and obsession we have with plants in our house. I went through and counted them, counted all the plants in our home. And I'm not talking about like the ones outside, that would have been too much. I'm talking about the ones that have made their way inside our house as an expression of decor, and I counted 56 plants in our home, okay? So, and now granted, most of them are concentrated in one area, but if that just tells you what it's like, and it's, it's really awesome, and if you talk to my wife about it, she really does kind of sell you on what makes it so enjoyable, but part of it, and the reason I'm saying that, is because we are surrounded in our home of these tangible reminders and these beautiful expressions of what actually happens when you take a seed, like a small, insignificant seed, and you plant it in soil, you cultivate it, and you tend to it, and what can it produce, and what can it create? It's, it's a really powerful and beautiful image, and it's one Jesus was familiar with, and one that Jesus drew upon to explain once again the importance of the kingdom of God, and it's the parable that we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 8, the parable of the sower. So let's walk through this together. It'll be the first 15 verses, but we're going to kind of walk through it incrementally. Let's start in chapter 8, verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had come out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household. Susanna and many others. These women were helping to support them out of their own means. And while a large crowd was gathering and people were coming to Jesus from town after town, he told this parable. Now let me stop there. All right, I want to make sure we understand the context with this, with which, within which this parable is being offered. Okay, first is the statement there in verse one that Jesus is going from town after town proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. Right? And we talked about this at the beginning of the series, that what a parable does is it takes something that is commonly known, like seeds or plants or planting, to explain something that is not commonly known, like the kingdom of God. And so the majority of the parables are pointing to and are designed to 
help inform and understand what is the kingdom of God or the nature of God. And so once again, we see that umbrella within which this parable is being offered. Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God. That is what this parable is meant to help us understand. Now, in addition to that, I want you to see the sort of people that are gathering to hear this parable, right? Like who makes up this audience on this particular occasion? Well, you have the 12, right? They're referenced, as well as many women who had evil spirits cast out of them and were healed of various diseases. And then you have specific references to some of the women. Mary Magdalene, you have Joanna, which is a very interesting reference because Joanna is the wife of Chusa, who is the manager of Herod's household. So think about that. Herod, who is in wild opposition against the gospel, right? Somebody that's affiliated with that household is now following Jesus. You have Susanna that is referenced, and all of these women are told, or we are told, are supporting the ministry of the disciples out of their own means. So they're industrious, they're successful, there's an influence there. And then you move to the next line, and it says they're going about in a large crowd gathers as people from town after town after town are coming to hear Jesus. So think about that. You have the 12, you have women, you have women from all different backgrounds and contexts, even people affiliated with Herod's household. You have people from town after town. The point is that this is a very eclectic and diverse group of people. And what we can infer from that, and the reason that Luke is going to great detail to explain that to us, is to let us know this parable is for everyone. Right? This isn't just for a select few. This is for everyone, which is an indirect reminder for you and me, the kingdom of God is for everyone. Right? It is for, it, this is an invitation to all people, no matter your background, no matter your culture, no matter your gender, no matter your age, it's for everyone. The question is, how do you respond to it? Right? And so we see that this is a wide and large group of people, and Jesus, in that context, offers the story. Let's continue in verse five. A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path. It was trampled on, and the birds ate it up. Some fell on rocky ground, and when it came up, the plants withered because they had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up with it and choked the plants, and still other seed fell on good soil. Well, it came up and yielded a crop a hundred times more than what was sown. And when he said this, he called out, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And his disciples asked him what this parable meant. <clears throat> and he said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to others, I speak in parables so that though seeing, they may not see, and though hearing, they may not understand. Now, let me stop there before we get into the actual meaning of the parable. All right, so Jesus tells the story. The disciples are like, great story. What in the world does it mean? And Jesus begins by providing an explanation by referring to Isaiah 6, verse 9. Now, I want to call your attention to this. Now, it's somewhat ironic that this is the parable we're teaching today, and I was already scheduled to talk about Isaiah 6, 9, but it comes at an appropriate time because if you were paying attention at all to current events this week, just so happens that the President of the United States also referred to Isaiah 6 in response to what's going on in Afghanistan. Okay? Now, I want, to, I want to reference that I have full respect for the office of the land, and, and we need to absolutely be praying for all the things that are going on in that crisis. But that was a great illustration of, one, of someone taking a scripture and pulling it wildly out of context, like amazingly out of context, right? That's a part of the call of Isaiah where the Lord is saying, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. And in our context, it was somehow maneuvered to support 
an American military endeavor, right? That is not what Isaiah 6 is for and never will be used for, okay? Isaiah 6 is about Jesus. And it just so happens on this particular Sunday, we have Jesus quoting it to give an example of how it pertains to him, specifically to why he's teaching parables. And so part of what he's saying here is, listen, I speak in parables because as we said in the first week, parables in many ways serve as a sifting between those who believe and those who don't, right? It's going to almost be this litmus test to those who respond to the kingdom of God and agree to it and believe in it and those who don't. And so those who miss the kingdom of God, those who miss the word of God that is being offered from Christ and all that he is doing, they're going to be like those who are seeing but cannot see, those who are hearing but do not understand. They miss it, right? And so he's, he's encouraging the disciples, listen, this secret, this knowledge, it's been given to you. And implicit in that statement is steward it well, right? And so it's a great reminder of what Jesus is trying to accomplish with this parable. So now he gives us the meaning. This is the meaning of the parable. The seed is the word of God, and those along the path are the ones who hear, and then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. Those on the rocky ground are the ones who receive the word with joy, and when they hear it, but they have no root. They believe for a while, but in the time of testing, they fall away. The seed that fell among the thorns stands for those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries, riches, and pleasures, and they do not mature. But the seed on the good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. All right, so as we begin to dive into this meaning, I want to clarify what vantage point we need to take to this parable. I I will confess to you, over the last several years, I have gone back to this parable time and time again, and I typically refer to it through the vantage point of the sower, right? And part of that is because of just my missional background and my missional heart, right? It's a great story to better understand what does it mean to go out and evangelize and share the gospel and sow the word of God into the hearts of others. And it's a great teaching tool to expect what kind of responses you may see from people. Not everybody's gonna wanna hear it, right? So I've often looked at this parable through the vantage point of the sower, The reality is, though, while that is appropriate and and a good reference point, the sower is not the main character in this story, not the main feature of this parable. The main feature of this parable is the soil. And what this parable really should challenge all of us to do is not just put ourselves in the place of the sower, but to to add to our list of questions, what kind of soil am I? It really is a parable that speaks to identity and our identity in Christ, our identity in in the kingdom, right? How do I respond to the word of God, to the kingdom of God? How does it shape? What kind of soil am I? What is the condition of my heart? Part of what I think we can all recognize as we consider all the different elements of soil that Jesus points out is that maybe we're never just one particular soil, right? I think a lot of us would acknowledge we go through seasons where maybe our heart is more like one soil and then another season where it's more like another and then even another. So maybe the better question for us is what season are you in? Which soil best represents your heart and your responsiveness and receptivity to the gospel? Right, that's really the question that we're asking. And so Jesus is very clear on the front end. He says the the seed is the word of God, right? And that's a very important thing for us to consider this morning. 
Right, keep in mind that Jesus is living in a time where there is no New Testament, right? So it's not like he's gathering people around and he's going, hey, turn to Philippians 2. Like, none of that's happened yet. So for him, the word of God is obviously the Old Testament, which he's already quoted in this moment, in this conversation. But as you follow along in Jesus' ministry, you know that he, he believes himself to be the Son of God who is revealing the word of God, so it is everything that he is teaching. All those times that he said, you've heard it said or you've seen it written, but I tell you, right? He's referring to not just the Old Testament, but his own teaching and his own ministry, right? So the word of God, now you and I, thankfully, are able to come along in this pursuit thousands of years later, and we can stand here confidently and recognize that the word of God is this, Right? It's, it's the scripture, it's the Old and New Testament as it has pre been preserved and passed down from generation to generation. And so the question that I have for you this morning is, do you really see it as the word of God? Like, think about that phrase, the word of God. I think if we're honest with ourselves, a lot of times we think to ourselves about the Bible or about scripture and say, well, it's a good collection of stories. Maybe we view it as a historical piece of work that gives us insight to what life was like thousands of years ago. Maybe, maybe we see it as a great philosophical work that teaches us ethics and all these other things that we consider. Right? We, we probably have a lot of different views of the scripture. Maybe for some of us it is even authoritative, but maybe it's a selective authority. We're like, well, I'll take this part of it, I'll take this part, I'm gonna ignore these other parts. Like, what is your actual view of the Bible? Do you really believe it to be the word of God? Think about what that implies. Like the word of God is here. If we truly believe that, we would be obsessed with it and it would consume us. And so if that obsession and that desire for it isn't as evident in your life, maybe it's because you have a distorted view of what it actually is. It's the word of God. Jesus establishes that firsthand. So then the question becomes, well, then how do you receive it, right? And part of what Jesus is highlighting here is that the kingdom of God is built upon the word of God and that the word of God reveals the kingdom of God. And so how are you responding to these things. And that's where Jesus lays it out for us. He says, well, there's really four different soils. Let's consider them. Okay, the first soil, what do we find there? The first soil is when that seed, the word of God, the kingdom of God is sown, immediately it is trampled upon and birds come and eat it up. The word trample means to despise, right? The, the idea of a bird coming and snatching it up and eating it means to devour. And, and this is the one soil as you continue reading that essentially applies outright rejection, right? There's a lack of belief and they are not saved is what Jesus says. So of all the four soils, this is the one that says, I want no part of it. It's an outright rejection of the kingdom of God and the word of God. Now, what are the things that tend to lend themselves to making us want to reject the kingdom of God and the word of God? What usually fosters that? a lot of different things, right? For example, it could be just a belief that there is no God, right? If I don't believe there is a creator, if I don't believe there is a God, then why in the world would I pay any attention to what people claim is his word? It's pointless, right? Some people reject it, not just because they don't believe in a God, but they just read the content and it just doesn't seem believable. I've had conversations with folks that look at me and they're like, dude, it's got talking snakes and seas that are divided and the sun, I don't believe that. 
It just seems like a fairy tale. It seems outlandish. Other people that I've visited with, they reject it because in their minds, man, this is all written by men. It's not trustworthy. Those are just some people's thoughts, man. They could be lying. They could be you know, misleading us. I can't trust that. Other folks reject it because of the other options that are out there. We've got millions upon millions of people that are going to put faith in different sacred texts. People are going to choose Islam or Hinduism or Buddhism or whatever it could be that's out there. Right? I'm going, to, I'm going to choose something else to believe in, which is why I'm rejecting the word of God. Other people are going to reject it because they've seen how it's been misused. How many times it's been used to create abuse and justifications for hardship and animosity towards others. Right? There's a lot of reasons people reject it. And I think the point that I would draw from, in particular as it pertains to this, this specific parable, is that that rejection is all the work of the adversary. Right? It takes you back to the garden. Right? What is the first part of that temptation that the evil one lays in the ears of humanity? Did God really say? Right? The moment that he can get us to question God's word, the authority of his word, man, that is what leads us down the path towards rejection. It's the work of the adversary. He wants to lure us astray. He wants us to question its legitimacy. And Jesus is affirming it is the word of God. So I implore you to receive it. Right? But what we see as the parable continues is that even if you get past that initial rejection and you do receive it, there's still some work to be done, right? The second soil is interesting, right? The second soil is the rocky soil that you receive it initially with joy, and then what, right? And then there's no root. And so because there's no root, when testing comes along, it, it falls away. And so this is that, that moment. This is kind of depicting those folks, those hearts, that when they hear the good news of the gospel and they hear the kingdom, they're like, yes, Jesus, man, I'm all in, and they receive it with joy, but nothing really materializes beyond that. There's no root. If you know anything about plants, and if you don't, you can find my wife afterwards, but if you know anything about plants, like we know that roots are the source of strength, right? Like that's what sustains it. That's what gives it life. That's what gives it its ability to withstand storms and scorching heat and all the different conditions, right? That's what gives it strength. And so without a root system, it dies, it falls away. And so Jesus is drawing upon that imagery, and he says, when testing comes, that's when you really find out if there's any root. That's when you really find out if you're able to stand. So testing is defined as trial or temptation, right? And so, so it could be either one. Uh, trial would be those circumstances in life that take you through hardships, right? That's that's grieving the loss of a loved one, that's being diagnosed with cancer. It's all these circumstantial hardships that can come about in life. Temptation are those things that are gonna lead you astray, right? Those things that are gonna pull you into a, 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 maybe an act of rebellion or defiance, right? The, the point is, is that all of us know that trial and temptation are an inevitable part of life, right? It, there's, there's no way around it. The question that I have for you is that whether or not those trials and temptations you're facing, are they drawing you closer to the word of God or further away from the word of God? Right, Jesus sets the example because he endures both. Right, he's tempted for 40 days in the wilderness and at each temptation, what does he call to mind? The word of God. Right, and here he is in the 
ultimate of trials, facing his own crucifixion, persecution, abandonment, betrayal, and there on the cross, in the midst of that agony, he calls our attention to Psalm 22 by invoking the first line of Psalm 22, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Time and time again, even in his trial and temptation, it drew him closer to the word of God, and he was able to withstand it. Right? When we go through life and those trials and temptations lead us away from the word of God, we have no root system and we ultimately succumb to the pressures and difficulties of those seasons. Right? So we have to evaluate, do we have that root? Is it firmly planted? A similar challenge is also identified in the third soil. Here we have seed that is planted amongst thorns that grow up alongside it, weeds that grow up alongside it and ultimately choke the, the development of this plant out. And Jesus equates these weeds and these thorns to the worries and riches and pleasures of the world. Now this, this to me is one that is very applicable to so many of us today. I kind of want to work through those three different things that Jesus dis, just described as being what can choke out the word of God and the kingdom of God in our lives. Let's start with worries, okay? Show of hands. Curious, who will admit it this morning? How many of you would acknowledge that you are a worrier by nature? Okay. Uh, next question. How many of you know a worrier in your life? Let me see your hands. Right? The majority of us. Right? It's an inherent part to life. Now, here's the question. What does worrying really accomplish for you? I think many of us would acknowledge that worrying rarely actually produces anything meaningful. In fact, a lot of times it just makes situations worse. Let me give you an example. Told you all, uh, over the summer, my family, we had a chance to go uh, to Disney World. It was a lot of fun. And we had, to go, had a chance to go with my whole extended family. And uh, it was a great trip, except for at the end of the trip, my daughter caught a stomach bug. And then my wife caught a stomach bug. So if you want to ever see worry, like watch people get the stomach bug in the midst of a large group of people staying in a hotel, right? Because then everybody in the group's like, who's next, you know, it's coming for me. And there's just, everybody's worried about where to sit, what to eat, who to stand next to. Like, it was really funny to, to watch. And so James and I, obviously, we protected ourselves. We let Jennifer and Annabelle have the room, and we slept on the fold-out couch. And my son, bless his heart, was so worried about getting sick. I mean, like, like obsessed with it, to the point that he actually woke me up at 3 a.m. And, and he wakes me up just sick with worry. He's like, Dad. I'm worried I'm going to get sick. And at 3 a.m., I was gracious. You know, I was like, like, is your stomach hurt? Like, do you feel like you're going to throw up? No, I'm just worried. I'm like, okay, say prayers, go back to sleep. Okay, goes back to sleep. I quickly found out that apparently my compassion and grace runs out at 4 a.m., right? Because then he woke me up a second time. Dad, I'm worried I'm going to get sick. James, you're not sick. Go to sleep. Yes, sir. You know, he's like, what's a bed? So the point was, though, he, was, he literally couldn't sleep, and he never got sick, right? Like, and that is such a great depiction of what often happens with our worries. In fact, to drive the point home, I came across an article in Psychology Today that looked at this study that was done at, uh, by two professors at Penn State University. They surveyed uh, a group of students and asked them to track their testable worries, right? So not like the ones that you'll never really find out in a short amount of time, like I'm worried I'm going to die in a plane crash or anything like that, but your worries that you can actually test out if they're going to come true over the next month or so. And they tested these out. You know what they found? 91% of the documented worries that students wrote down, 91% were false alarms. 
right? And so what this tells us is that it's inherent almost that we can conjure up this angst and this worry. It isn't real, right? In fact, the, the, the professors kind of defined worry as deceit. It convinces you that there's this threat that's real when in reality, in actuality, it's not. Which is why Jesus says, who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Don't worry. Seek my kingdom. Right? Which then leads to, interestingly enough, riches. Because guess what is one of the main things people worry about? Money. In fact, I came across some interesting statistics uh, according to a study that was done by Northwestern Mutual recently, money is the number one source of stress for 44% of American adults, outpacing personal relationships and work. More than a quarter of those surveyed said that financial anxiety made them feel depressed at least once a month. There's a Gallup poll that was done in 2019. Listen to these statistics. 25% <clears throat> of people worry all the time about money. 54% worry they won't have enough for retirement. 51% worry they won't have enough for unexpected medical bills. 36% worry they won't have enough to pay monthly bills. 30% worry they won't be able to keep up with housing costs. And 20% worry that they won't be able to pay down debt. Over and over and over again, we're worried about money. Why is that? It's because we live in a culture that's obsessed with wealth and affluence. And we've bought into this narrative and this idea that if you acquire more and own more and possess more and have more, you'll be happier. And study after study, man, we've preached on it, has shown you that's not true. And we buy into that lie and it puts us on this treadmill of worry because you can never really have enough and it never really actually makes you happy. And so we get obsessed with money and riches, and all these things we think it can secure for us. And Jesus enters in and he says, let me remind you, you can't have two masters, right? You're gonna love one and hate the others. You'll be devoted to one. You'll despise the other. You cannot love both God and money. Right? And riches are one of the things that lead us astray. Pleasures, right? Now, this is interesting. Before I get into the concept of pleasures, I wanna make sure we understand that following Jesus doesn't mean you're never supposed to have fun. Right? It's not like if I'm gonna follow Jesus, I need to rid my life of all pleasure. That's not at all what the gospel teaches. There are so many things that bring pleasure to life and joy to life. Right? A, a hug from a child, a beautiful sunset, a campfire on a cold, like enjoy life and have pleasure, absolutely. But find it in the right things. The word that's used here is hedone, which is where you get the eventual idea of hedonism. And the way it's seen in the New Testament, it's referenced four or five times, and in every example, it's very negative and is often seen as an antithesis to the gospel, right? And so the word, from a biblical point of view, is suggesting these are the things that draw you back into the evil and pull you away from God. That's the sort of pleasure that's being referenced here. You, you can find numerous passages in the New Testament that are gonna give you a list of those vices, like Galatians 5 and the cravings of the flesh, Sexual immorality, debauchery, gossip, greed, dissension, animosity, slander, goes on and on and on. Our, our propensity for those things, our impulses to those things lead us astray. <clears throat> and so here's the point. You can receive the word of God, right? You can believe it. You can, you can identify as a Christian, a believer. You can be like, I'm all in on this kingdom. 
But because of the worries, the pursuit of riches and pleasures, nothing matures. Right? You become that plant that's withering in the corner, just surviving rather than thriving like it should be. Right? Because more of your life is focused upon, your identity is being shaped more by the worries that you carry, the riches that you're pursuing, and the pleasures that you desire, rather than the word and the kingdom of God. And so you're not maturing, right? You're stagnant. And Jesus is saying there's so much more. I'm not coming here just so you can survive, but so that you can thrive. And that's what leads to the fourth soil. The good soil Right, which Jesus defines as a good and noble heart. Well, what is a good and noble heart? Well, I think we could easily say it's everything that the other three soils aren't. It's a heart that believes in the goodness of the kingdom. It's a heart that is going to endure in the face of trial and temptation. It's a heart that is gonna look beyond the worries and the riches and the pleasures that can so easily lead us astray. It's a heart that's ready to receive the good news of the kingdom. And it does four things that Jesus references. It hears retains, perseveres, and produces. I love that. It's a good reminder for us, right? And if we're going to receive the kingdom of God that is it's built upon the word of God, then you need to hear the word of God. One of the greatest disconnects that we see in the church today is people are saying they follow Jesus and they never listen to his word. We'll listen to a lot about what other people have to say about Jesus and very little to what Jesus actually says. And it's created this faulty depiction. So now people say, man, I would believe in Christ except for all these Christians that are out there. And the reason these Christians don't look like Christ is because they don't know what Christ looks like. They don't know the word. You gotta hear it. You gotta be in it. You gotta read it. You gotta sing it. You gotta talk about it with each other. You gotta be committed to it. You gotta fall in love with the word. That's what we're trying to do here with discipleship groups and Bible studies and our time here, man. You got to hear it consistently. You gotta retain it. Right? Retain means to continue. So it's not this, this pressure to memorize everything, but it's to understand that you can't just like read it and, and consider it once when you're in Sunday school growing up. Like you have to be in a lifestyle of continuing exposure to the word. It's a habit. It's a diet. Man, it's, it's like a steady stream of intake for the word of God so that you can build your life upon it. You have to retain it. Now, when you do that, and you hear it and retain it, guess what it's going to equip you to do? To persevere. And so here's the connection that I would want you to make, right? When, when you think about how do I hear and retain the word of God so that it equips me to persevere through this life, I think what is so critical is to have the right mindset. And I think where a lot of times we fall short and we can't get the momentum we need is because we approach this with the wrong mindset. Right? It's very common to hear a, a sermon on the word of God and go, man, I gotta read the Bible more, dang it. All right, and then you come up with goals, right? And, and good goals, you're like, all right, chapter a day, 15 minutes, I'm gonna have my quiet time, and I'm doing this now. And, and it's, it's all good stuff, right? And, it, and it's good intentions, and I don't wanna discourage that, but I want you to evaluate your mindset because the trick there, or the risk there, is that when we approach it that way, we approach the word of God like it's a task, and it's a chore. Does anybody like chores? Like, I don't. Right? And what happens when you, when you start to fall behind with chores? You start to resent it, like laundry. I hate laundry. Can I get an amen? Right? Like laundry never ends in our house. Like it never ends. And I get so frustrated. 
And so I'll like finally just, like, I ain't doing it, you know, and I'm just done. And then eventually I hit a crisis where I'm like, well, dang it, now I don't have any clothes, so I guess I have to do it. And so we do it, and we have the layout of our house. It means that once it's done, it's all in our living room. We got heaps of laundry. We got to fold and take forever, put her away. And I just get tired of laundry because it's a chore. And that's how a lot of us view the scripture. We treat it like a task, right? And inevitably, we can't maintain our goals or our habits, and so then we feel guilty, and then it piles up, and then a crisis hits, and we're like, well, I guess I better get into it, but then we're embarrassed, we don't know all this stuff, and we treat it like a task. That's not how you approach the scripture. It's not a task, it's a relationship. And this is the word of God. This is the opportunity to commune with your creator. It's a relationship. Can you imagine treating any other relationship like a task? Like if I sat down with my wife and said, you know what, I know that communication's important. I got 15 minutes, what do you wanna talk about? And then I waited like a week or a month to talk to her again. And we wouldn't be able to withstand anything. But it's a relationship. And because I value that relationship, I spend time and I listen and I talk. And because we commune with one another, guess what? Our relationship can persevere everything it then encounters. That's how you approach the scripture. Because the more you hear it and thirst for it and retain it and cultivate that relationship, then you can withstand those trials and those temptations. You can look beyond the worries and the riches and the pleasures and you persevere. And when that happens, guess what happens in you? Something produces. Something begins to change or transforms. Right? A crop of a hundredfold wells up. And we know that there's a thousand different things that that could represent, could represent the fruits of the Spirit. All of a sudden, because of this relationship, your life looks different. It's filled with love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness, faithfulness and self-control. You begin to really love God and love others. You begin to have this radical and unyielding love for the neighbor. You begin to really understand that the kingdom of God is not about just coming to church, but understanding that sin and death have been defeated. Everything changes, and you take this truth that has so changed you, and you plant it in other people that are around you, and you see it bloom in their lives, and the next thing you know, it spreads into a harvest. It produces. What's it producing in you? What soil are you? How has the word of God and the kingdom of God shaped your identity? I want to conclude with this. I think the way I would really try to encourage us to invest in this is to recognize that life is hard, which shouldn't come as a shock to any of us, right? I mean, come on, y'all. We're living in a pandemic. There are discussions of wars and terrorism all around us, political turmoil, hostility and cultural arguments and divide, and that's just what's happening around us. Then you factor in the pressures that you feel at home with your own family, your own relationships, the pressures you feel at work or at school, like life's hard. How in the world are you gonna navigate it? How do you know what steps to take in those moments? What I love about the scripture is Psalm 119, 105 says, the word of the Lord is a lamp unto my feet and a light for my path. You wanna know what step to take to whatever journey you're on, whatever path you're on in life right now? The word of God will inform you. So what 
What path are you on this morning? Let the word of God dwell in you richly and lead you and guide your steps. Why don't you close your eyes for a moment? And I just want to speak the word of God over you to whatever season you may be in. Maybe some of you are in a season of joy, man. You've had some great things taking place in your life. Season of celebration. I'd encourage you to be reminded of what the psalmist says when he says, I will give thanks to you, Lord, with all my heart. and I'll tell of all your wonderful deeds. Maybe some of you come in here this morning and you're carrying the weight and burdens of estranged relationships. Marriage is on the rocks. Friendships are feeling tension. Animosity between people you love and you're discovering how hard love really is, you need to be reminded that love is patient, it's kind, doesn't envy, doesn't boast, it is not proud, doesn't dishonor others, it's not self-seeking or easily angered, keeps no record of wrongs, doesn't delight in evil, but it rejoices with truth. You need to be reminded that love always protects, trusts, hopes, and perseveres. Love never fails. Maybe some of you come in here today feeling guilt and shame for mistakes that you've made or secrets that you hold. You need to be reminded of how our Savior encounters a woman who caught, was caught in a very similar situation, and he asks her, who condemns you? She looks around and she says, no one, sir. And he says, well, nor do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Maybe some of you are dealing with a low sense of self-worth, purpose, and of meaning. And you're reminded once again, what the psalmist tells us, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Maybe you have fears, fears about tomorrow, fears about the uncertainty of life, fears about current realities. You need to be reminded of what the Creator says to Joshua. Don't be afraid. Don't be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. For some of you, your most recent journey is one like my own. And you've had to walk down a path of grief. And you've needed to be reminded of what this is all for. How to make sense of this life in the face of inevitable death. And the promises that lead us through it. We need to be encouraged once again with the hope of this gospel that we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised and perishable, and we will all be changed. The perishable will clothe itself with imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And when this happens, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, 
My dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Father in heaven, we thank you for the way that your word speaks and comforts and convicts and challenges and inspires and leads. Father, we pray that you would once again stir our hearts to a greater devotion, a greater love, a greater commitment to you. Father, that our hearts would receive the good news of this kingdom, God, in a manner that allows us to look beyond trials and temptations and worries and riches and pleasures. May it produce within us the fruit of the Spirit and the fulfillment of responding to your good, pleasing, and perfect will, Father. Father, help us to see that when we walk down this path, it's a king that we follow. For he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and his kingdom will never yield and never faint. So we walk boldly, confidently, declaring the good news of this kingdom, knowing our labor is not in vain. Lead us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Let's